for the term of an intern or an internship. Some of you young people may have done that. It's an opportunity to learn from others. Well, the Lord has brought Israel into the wilderness for their season of itineration. So that's where we pick up in chapter 17, verse 8. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let, it down, let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thus far, the word of our God. What a blessing to hear what God has spoken so long ago and preserved even for his people, for our building up even this day. Let us pray. O Lord, as we have assembled before you and as you have come to meet with us, we rejoice that we are here in your presence, that we gather under the name of Christ. We come to you through the mediation of Christ. And we come with the confidence because of his completed work. And Lord, as we come to the preaching of the word, we, we also come with the confidence, and yet we make it our petition that the Holy Spirit who moved Moses, that holy man of old, along to write these things, that that same spirit would be at work now in the preaching and the hearing of the word that Christ would be exalted, that he would be all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you detected it, but there's a significant change in the middle of this chapter as we have it. We know Moses did not write with chapters and verses, but there's a significant change. There's a a move uh, in the focus. We move from multiple events of need, murmuring, to warfare. That is a remarkable change. Israel is attacked by Amalek. But if you were paying attention during the reading of the passage, you will notice that one thing has not changed. That is the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord's faithfulness is steadfast. As before, he made provision for his people, and he protected his people, even as Amalek came out to make war with them. Right away, I want to announce the theme of this passage. It really isn't new. The, the themes have run consistently 
It is completely consistent with what we've seen since the beginning of the book of Exodus. And that is that the God of Israel, who is also our God, is the covenant faithful Lord. He is ever faithful to the covenant that he has made with his people. And we see that no matter what the circumstance, we see the faithfulness of the Lord. There's a second theme or principle that flows from this. The Lord's faithfulness to his people is not based on their worthiness. Think about that for our own lives. The Lord's faithfulness to us is not based on our worthiness. We don't earn God's favor. The favor that we have with the Lord is founded and grounded and secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God is a God of grace and mercy then and now. And as we move through this passage, I want you to keep these two truths in mind and think about how they apply to you. We will make some applications, but just keep that in your mind. The faithfulness of the Lord, how does it apply to you? Because remember, you are never worthy of God's grace. God's grace flows from him because he is of God as grace. Nor can we ever demand mercy from God, but he extends mercy to his people through a thousand generations. And there is help for the Lord's people in all times, in all places. So what we see in this passage the faithfulness of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord, is true even for us today. That help in the Lord was secured at the cross when Jesus died to save his people from their sin. And it's for this reason that he came into the world. This is why the Son of God came to earth. Emmanuel, God with us, he came that he might bring us to God. And God is with us back then. And even until now, the Lord is faithful to his people. I could wrap up the sermon right there. It's sufficient. I mean, this is astounding truth. In this introduction, I mean, surely we say, this is astounding. This, this is plenty to meditate on. But nonetheless, we want to be faithful. Uh, this is a brief passage, and we want to take a look at it. It's a brief passage, and it's filled with firsts. You know, we're, we're deep into Exodus now. Here we are, wrapping up chapter 17. We're approaching the midway point as chapters go. But there's some first here. In addition to the first battle, we introduce to two new characters in the unfolding narrative, Her and Joshua. Both of these men, we find out elsewhere in the five books of Moses, are chief assistants to Moses this becomes very clear as you read on. Uh, we will learn that Moses leaves the people under the care of Aaron and Hur when he goes up the mountain of God, when he goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord for the 40 days. He leaves the people in the charge of Aaron and Hur. We also learn something, another first. The rod that Moses has carried all the way from the wilderness was in his hand when he met God at the burning bush. That rod, which has been the instrument in the plagues, uh, the parting of the sea, it is called for the first time in this passage, the rod of God. And 
That should be no surprise to us when you consider how many times the Lord has had Moses take up the rod in his hand. And it was a manifestation of God's power, a demonstration of his power, the rod of God. And for the first time, Moses is told to record the events of this day in a book for Joshua. We'll talk about that some more. Another first, Moses builds an altar to the Lord. We're going to learn something about that. And then the one more new thing in this passage. This is remarkable. This is verses 8 through 16. And there's all these firsts. There's one more thing. There's a new name for the Lord that's revealed. It's added to the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord. There's an addition. You saw that in verse 15. It's in the original. It's Jehovah Nisse. That is the Lord is my banner. So we're going to look at this in four main headings, and I have changed the order um, when I send these off so they can be added to our worship guide. Sometimes there's more work to be done. So I'm flipping the last two points, so take note of that. Uh, We'll be looking at victory over the enemy through prayer, the Lord's command, I'm sorry, the Lord's use of means, We'll see the Lord's use of means will be prayer and the sword of Joshua. And then the Lord's command to make a record. And then finally, the Lord is worshipped for his deliverance of his people. We begin with victory over the enemy through prayer. Look again at verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. That's just kind of out of the blue, isn't it? We've not heard anything about Amalek. We have not heard any of this. This is like the wilderness of sin. They're out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. Now, who is Amalek? Amalek was Esau's grandson. Remember, Jacob had a brother, Esau. And, of course, Jacob has many children. He had 12 sons and grandsons. And so these are descendants. This is Esau. Amalek is Esau's grandson. And a nation has come from him. And so we can really say that these are the cousins of Jacob's children. This is family that's come out to war. We notice that often in the Old Testament account, actually. We notice that the battle takes place at Rephidim, which is where we find ourselves in the first part of this chapter. There's some aspects in the second half that are really not all that different than what's happened in the first place. We see both the accounts in the first half and the second half of the chapter, they're periods of great testing. And the rod of God plays a significant role in both accounts. The need for the water. Remember, Moses struck the rock, and the water flowed forth from it. We're going to see the rod of God plays a role here. The other thing that's interesting, and it's totally lost if we don't look at the original language, but in, uh, if we think of verses 1 through 7 as half uh, an account, half the chapter, and 8 through 16 as half, in these two halves, there are a number of words in the Hebrews that have similar-sounding words. I know there's a grammaral term for that. I'd, I'm not going to pretend I remember what it is right now. But there's a lot of similar-sounding words in both accounts. That often happens in the Scriptures. Uh, plays on words, similarities in words, structures in 
we have that in these two accounts. What we're seeing here is this whole, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses uh, that we, if we, particularly if we could read this in the Hebrew, and we see it in the English, these accounts are not wholly different. They're very much tied together. So what is the difference is this. Up to this point, the afflictions and the hardships that have come upon Israel have been from the natural world, natural occurring things, hunger and thirst. They're just circumstantial things. They're the realities of all men and all generations and all times. We need to eat and we need to drink. And that's what Israel's faced with. And then in the place where they've been, the scarcity of those things is we manifested within them a, a grumbling and a complaining and even a contention with Moses, their leader, and ultimately with God. This time, the affliction is a nation, a hostile nation, a military power who comes out for warfare. We have an adversary like that, don't we? The evil one seeks to make war against the people of God. It's one of the great themes of the book of Revelation. It's also one of the themes that runs through particularly the Old Testament narratives. Warfare is prevalent. Uh, if you read the book of Joshua, there's about warfare. Just wrapping up Chronicles and more warfare. There's just warfare everywhere. Well, this is Israel's first time to experience it. What do you do? They have no idea. And so it is the Amaleks come out to make war. Now, the Amaleks were a, a nomadic people, children. That means they wandered. Um, they would move from place to place. Uh, in a wilderness area, resources will only last so long. And if you have livestock, uh, after a while the land is overgrazed, and so you move to another area and to another area. And Israel has come into that area. And remember, Israel is a great horde of people, millions of people. And you can imagine Amalek feeling threatened that Israel's going to consume what's in that area, and, and they won't be able to use those resources themselves. It's not stated, but more than likely, that's the threat they see. And so they come out to war. When Moses preaches to the next generation, that is the generation that survives the 40 years and is about to enter into the land, when Moses preaches to that second generation about this event, you find it in Deuteronomy 25, this is what he says. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at the rear when you were tired and weary. And he, that is Amalek, did not fear God. And so we get a little insight that Amalek says they're harassing the rear lines, uh, the people who are having a hard time keeping up, you know, be, you know, children, families with younger children, the elderly, people that can't move along so quick. Um, those are the ones that are harassing Something, and to me, it strikes me about that being kind of cowardly, you know, to come and pray on the rear ranks. ranks. But that's what Moses tells us was happening. So Moses, in this event, we find he speaks to Joshua, his young disciple. We've not heard about Joshua before, but Joshua is going to play a significant role throughout the next number, well, through this generation and on into the next generation. 
He's a man being prepared to lead when Moses is gone. Moses, I mean, Joshua is doing an internship. Even as Israel is in a period of an itineration. Joshua's name in the Hebrew means the same thing as Jesus' name in the Greek, Savior. And you see that indeed Joshua is exactly that by God's appointment. Like our Redeemer Jesus, who is our King, who rules and defends us from all his and our enemies. Joshua is a type or a picture. He's pointing to Christ as he goes forth to war on the behalf of the people of God, leading them out to war. Look at verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of the men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua is set apart by God through Moses to be the commander of the Lord's army. What an incredible responsibility. And just, we, we don't know anything about Joshua. We're just, just now going to begin to learn about Joshua. But Joshua will be at Moses' side even when it's not named. When Moses goes out the mountain of God, Joshua will go with him. Many of the times when Moses goes out to the tent of meeting to meet with God, Joshua will be with him. And there's a place where we're told that when Moses came back to the people, Joshua remained at the tent of meeting with God. Joshua is a significant individual in the life of the church in those days. So, Joshua is supposed to go to war and lead the people of God. And Moses is going to go up to a high place, a high hill, with the rod of God in his hand. Moses was going up with the rod of God in his hand to pray for the people, to, to extend the rod of God. Moses had no power in himself, and in a sense, the rod is a rod. But God has chosen the rod that, he is, that Moses has to be a symbol of his presence and his power and the instrument that he uses to accomplish his will in all these situations. You remember what rod was uh, what Moses struck the river Nile with and the waters turned to blood. It was what the rod that Moses extended over the sea and the winds began to blow and they crossed over on dry land. So we see Moses going up to pray for the people. We've just said that Joshua is a picture of Christ as our king, ruling and defending us from all his and our enemies. Moses is serving as the high priest. It's not been a priesthood name, but Moses is the priest of the people of God. He's going up to intercede on behalf of Joshua and the army. Moses is a picture pointing to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is at the Father's right hand right now, who continually makes intercession for us. This is a real war. There was real bloodshed. Real weapons were used. Just aside, where do you think those weapons that Israel has came from? Some of the plunder they took from the armies of Egypt. This is a real literal war. But brothers and sisters, we are engaged in a spiritual war. And when we consider that, Christ is our king who rules and defends us. And he is also the one who makes intercession for us. Now, verse 10 tells us that everyone was to obey the Lord's command in their office and station. And we see that's what happened. So 
Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. Isn't that remarkable? It tells us something about a maturity in, in Joshua, that there's a faith, a mature faith in Joshua already. He doesn't argue with Moses and say, Moses, I've, I've never gone to war. I've never been trained in the skills of war. I've never led people into war. Joshua obeyed the command of the Lord, and he did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur then, they went up to do what they were supposed to do. They went up to the top of the hill. And here we find the Lord bringing a great victory. As Moses lifts up his arms, the rod of God is in one of his hands. And it's the very picture of Moses interceding on the behalf of the armies of Israel. Interceding in a sense, uh, a display of the power of God and the rod extended over the armies of Israel that they would prevail over their foes. And the Lord was blessing the battle. But then verse 11 reminds us that Moses, a great as man as he was, a godly man, a great leader, he was but a mere man. We find that so often in the scriptures, don't we? Um, we were just reading about Jehoshaphat in our reading. And uh, he was a faithful king, and yet... There's records of his flaws. He was but a man. And you see that with Moses, because what are we told? So it was when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Have you ever just held your hand out for a while? How long can you keep that up? It just, it, it just grows in its weight. I mean, obviously, it doesn't get any heavier, but your muscles grow weary, and that's what was happening to Moses as he's extended the rod. And when he drooped with the rod, Amalek prevailed. What's to be done? Remember, Moses is a mere man, and he's also a man who's in his 80s, 80 years old. We're told later he had this great strength, but... He is but a mere man. And that brings us to our second point. The Lord uses means. The Lord uses means. Particularly the obvious means is the sword of Joshua and the others who had swords, but also the means of Moses with the rod of God in his hand. So we want to focus on that before we focus on the sword. Let us remember, in all battles, the victory belongs to the Lord. Um... There are many times in the accounts in the Old Testament of, of battles where God, uh, particularly we had a faithful king, and God would do remarkable things. We just, as I said, read about Jehoshaphat, and, and there was a great foe, foe, force that come out against him. And God said, you just go down to this place, and the armies will be arrayed before you. You're not, you're not going to fight at all. Just go down and watch what happens. And the Lord turns one part of the, the group on the other, and they slaughter each other. And then the ones that are left, they turn on each other. And Israel comes, and it's, the, the place is just filled with dead bodies. And they spend three days collecting the spoil because God fought for his people. My friends, as we think about this literal warfare, let us remember we are engaged in spiritual warfare, particularly our own growth and holiness, sanctification. As Paul writes, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, God is the one who prevails in our lives in those things. But we'll deal with that more in a little bit with some application.
And so Moses was growing weary. His arm is drooping. And so means are necessary. Verse 12 tells us what happens. So Moses' hands became heavy, so they... Who's the they? Well, it's the two that went up to the hilltop with Moses, Aaron and Hur. They took a stone. In God's providence, there's a stone there, sufficient height for Moses to sit on, and he sat on it. And then Aaron and Hur supported the hands one on one side and another on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So you can picture Moses is seated, his arms are up, Aaron and Hur stand on either side, perhaps his arms resting on their shoulders throughout the day, and now his arms are supported and the rod of God is extended all the way till the sun sets. Moses had assistance. Moses needed help. And as long as the rod of God was extended over the battlefield, Israel prevailed over Amalek, and Amalek was defeated. God used means. He uses means in our lives as well as we do war with our own flesh. We speak those means when we gather for worship. There's means of grace. We need grace. We need to hear the Word of God read and preached. We need to sing the praises of God. Praises to God, praises about God with one another, hearing one another for the mutual encouragement and edification of the saints. Our prayers, all these are means of grace. Some of these things we take home with us. Some of these things we can do any place at any time. These are means that God has given us that we would prevail. Scripture says we have not because we ask not. Prayer is one of the greatest means the Lord has appointed for us to prevail. And that's what you see as a picture. Moses faithfully with the rod of God. It's as though he's interceding on the behalf of Israel. With the rod of God extended and the power of God being displayed on the battlefield. But verse 13 makes clear that the Lord also used the edge of the sword. That was another means that God used. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now, do you notice that? There's this battle. Battles have strategies, right? You, know, you have different troops and battalions and platoons and all the way you divide up armies. We're not told anything about that. And it's quite remarkable because Joshua, who is a military commander and wrote a whole book about the victories that they won over the people that occupied the land, the accounts of the battles are very brief. The main theme is God prevailed and delivered his people. And you see that here where there's no lengthy description about how the battle was played out. The focus is on... The mean. Joshua was obedient. We heard that earlier. He did as Moses commanded him. And Amalek was defeated. And how was it done? By the edge of the sword. As God prevailed, as Moses extended the rod of God over the battlefield. And just like that, it's done. Sometimes we like some of the juicy details. I know there's some of you guys sitting here. We all like to watch a good war movie, right? And strategies played out and bravery displayed and compassion and brotherhood. And, and those are all wonderful things. But we don't get that often in the scriptures. We will, There's a few places where God gives a strategy. But even in those accounts, it's just the Lord prevailed and, and there's not much more told to us about it. It's not important. What's important is that God is faithful. 
God was faithful. This isn't hunger. This isn't thirst. This is a foe. This is an army that's come out to attack God's people. And God was faithful to his covenant. And he preserved them and he delivered them. God has prevailed. It's interesting. Verse 14, if you look at it, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. This word oh, I've lost myself. Yeah. Um, no. The word translated back to uh, verse uh, Fort 13. So Joshua defeated. The, this is not a word of complete conquest. Uh, there are times when Joshua will lead an army, is the army of Israel, and entire nations will be absolutely destroyed. They'll be devoted to the Lord, everyone. Uh, this word here, the, the word you defeated, is it's the, our, the really the idea is that Joshua weakened Amalek. And there's an irony. There's a play on words here. Remember the passage we read from Deuteronomy, how Amalek was attacking the weak stragglers? And now Amalek has weakened. There's a play of words as God records these things. Joshua disabled or weakened the army that once was harassing the weak in Israel. It's just like our God to do that. I hope that uh, the application... Is obvious, I've alluded to it, but a little more specific. How do we overcome the enemy? You know, what, what's our, what is our enemy? The scripture speaks in a multiple to two places of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, it's not the world, God's creation in general. It's particularly sinful men, worldliness, those who walk after the manner of, of sin and worldliness. They're our foe. They're contrary to us. We, we, we have a sense of that. There's, there's a growing animosity against the things of God. There's, a, there's a, even a blatant hatred for God and his people. Uh, just this last week, I, I, I read how there's this, a growing opposition to Christianity, that we're being equated to being something like Islamic terrorists. Yes, Christians. The world is against us. The world is not our friend. The world is our enemy. The flesh. And we think of Romans 7. Paul talks about the, the internal battle between the redeemed inner man that's been born from above, born of the Spirit, the new birth of Christ that is in our inner man, and yet our outer body, which is decaying, awaiting God's work of glorification in it. It's, it's got a different law, Paul says, in our members. And there's this internal warfare. It's the chief battle that we face. And then there's, of course, the devil. There's the spiritual warfare Paul writes about in Ephesians 6. So we have these foes. So how do we overcome these enemies? Well, it's by prayer and the word of God. Christ has given us what we need. We go to the king of kings. Our king who rules and defends us from all his and our enemies. We go and we make our petitions and requests known to him. And he will not fail us. He is the covenant faithful Lord now as he was then. 
And we use the word of God. That's how Jesus in the wilderness, when he faced Satan, what did he use? He used the word of God. That was his weapon, the sword of the Lord, sharper than any two-edged sword, actually, piercing the soul, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And here we see God, as he brings this great victory, he uses means. And though some of these means are still with us, we don't take up swords literally today to go fight the world. Our chief battles within. There may be a place. There's times in history when indeed the church went to war. You can read about Zwingli. Make your own judgments on that situation. But the battle within. How how do we overcome? What is how does the the Psalms open? I delight in your word. The law of the Lord, I meditate on it day and night. This is David saying, God's word is what refreshes and strengthens and feeds me. And he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sit against thee. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. It's the word of God is the means whereby we overcome and prevail. We need the word of God. And we also need to call upon the name of the Lord because... Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 13. Is there in the upper room? He says, "I'm going to leave you." That'd be an alarming statement. For three years they've been with him, but he said, "I'm going to send another, like myself, the Comforter, my Spirit. I'm going to send him to you, and he will abide with you." We have the Spirit. And you, you've heard me say this before. Every time I think about, it, I just marvel. The Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep, the beginning of all creation. The Spirit who, as God spoke the word, even Jesus Christ, the Spirit who went out and accomplished the will of God, that same Spirit dwells inside of us. He helps us to pray, Paul writes in Romans 8. Even when when we're at a loss for words, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit takes the deep groanings of our hearts that we can't even articulate words for, and He makes our prayer and request known to the Father. Jesus is the one who secured these things for us. Jesus is the one who went to the cross so that our sin would be defeated, the power of sin broken over us, paying the penalty for sin, and opening the way so that the Spirit of the living God could come then and bring the salvation that Christ has purchased right into us, and the Spirit can come right into us. Christ is the one who has accomplished all this for us so that we can be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. Well, the third thing that we see here is God commands that a record be made. So first, this writing, uh, uh, making a record, it may not make sense to us you know, when we look at this unless we know the rest of the story, and we do. Joshua is going to lead Israel, especially in the wars, and they cross the River Jordan and go in to possess the land that, that God had promised to Abraham, their father, that they would have as their own. God is telling Moses to begin a book for Joshua, to write a record of God's faithfulness in battles so that Joshua can read it and reread it. And it would seem that Moses, I mean, Joshua adds to that book of God's faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew original here is very odd to us. Literally, 
it says, write this memorial, a record of what's taken place, write this memorial in a book and put it in the ears of Joshua. You hear that, children? Now, if you want to take that literally, it sounds like, you know, he's going to write this out on a scroll, roll it up, and push it in Joshua's ears. But obviously, that's not what it means. It's, a, it's figurative. What it is is that so that Joshua can have it read to him. He can read it. And if he's reading it himself, that he should read it out loud, that he should hear over and over and over and over again the faithfulness of the Lord. My friends, is that not what we need as believers? Have you ever tried this in your, in your private times with the Lord when you're personally worshiping and communing with God? Read the word out loud. If you've never done that before, read the word out loud by yourself. And notice the difference between just reading the word off the page or listening to an audio book, an audio, an audio reading of the scriptures. There's something about our ears and our hearing of God's word that has a different effect on us. And that's what God's telling Moses. Write this in a book and put it in Joshua's ears. God is making a pledge to Israel and the promises for Joshua to remember. It's being written so that he can read it and reread it. And literally, have it in his, not literally, but figuratively, having in his ears, lest Joshua ever forget the pledge of God. That God is faithful. And we have exactly that same need. We need to be reminded. It's what we should do with one another. As we encourage one another. The word of God is profitable. It is written for our instruction, for our correction, for our rebuke, for the training in righteousness. And we need to encourage one another with the word. Fathers, you should be opening the word and reading the word to your children. Even as Joshua is an inferior to Moses, the superior. Here's Joshua receiving from Moses the word of God, a word of remembrance. Fathers, be training your children in what the Lord has done. Put it in their ears so that they will know the faithfulness of the Lord. Numbers 21, 14, Moses tells us that there was a specific book that was kept and added to. And I think this is that book. The title is called there, The Book of the Wars of the Lord. And I think this is when it has started. Later in Numbers, Moses records the prophecy that the Lord put in Balaam's mouth. Remember, Balaam was hired by Barak, the king of Moab, because he sees this horde coming out, and he's terrified, and he tries to hire Balaam, who is he's, uh, he's a prophet for hire. He's a charlatan. But nonetheless, the Lord uses Balaam. I shouldn't surprise us. God uses Balaam's ass as well. Balaam's not a whole... Well, maybe Balaam's ass is more commendable than Balaam. But the Lord puts a word in Balaam's mouth, a faithful prophecy. Um, Barak was not happy when he heard it because the Lord foretells through Balaam of the rise of a star and a scepter coming from Israel and how he will destroy once mighty nations. And then it goes on in Numbers 24:20 tells us that Amalek was the first among the nations. This is a powerful nation. It was first among the nations. Chief, the most powerful this time. And the text goes on to say, this is through Balaam's prophecy, that he, that's Amalek, shall be last until he perishes. 
God begin a thing here that will be accomplished over time until ultimately Amalek is no more. Amalek, scripture refers to this way, it was Israel's brothers, their relatives. And they came out and harassed the weak of the people of God. So what's the pledge that we find here in verse 14? Write it down. And what is it that God wants Joshua to know? What's it, has, it ties into what we just heard from Numbers. God says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Anybody met any Amaleks? 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 The Amalekites. I'll get to it. Anybody met any Amalekites lately? No. God has done what he has promised. He's utterly blotted them out from under heaven. And that's true of many other peoples that came out in opposition to his people. My friends, this is an encouragement for us. Um, We as a church in the West have enjoyed blessing in this country for hundreds of years. The freedom of religion, the freedom to assembly, we still are able to. But you can see dark clouds gathering. You hear voices growing stronger against the church. We're being maligned. We're being slandered as to who we are and what we are. The enemy is becoming bolder. And what the church has experienced in other parts of the world may soon be true for us. And I would have us to remember this passage. The Lord fights for his people and is faithful to his covenant. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied concerning the nations. Think about this. Not just the nations then. This is true of the nations today. Nations are full of themselves. We know that there's many great nations trying to rise up. There's huge contests between nations in the world today. China, Russia, North Korea, you, know, you just name, they're, they're all out there wanting to be first and foremost. And of course, they see the land in which we live as the problem, and we're that Christian nation. But remember the words of Isaiah, God's words through Isaiah Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket and are counted as, a, as small as dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the islands as a very little thing. And Lebanon, Lebanon was known for all its many, 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 many trees. And Lebanon is, is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering, that is, to offer to the Lord. All the nations before him are as nothing. Brothers and sisters, that's a word verse worth memorizing, just that one phrase. All the nations before our God are Nothing. They are counted as less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? This is what Israel is just beginning to find out about in their, their period of itineration. The nations are nothing. Remember Psalm 2, we sing it often. It's true. God has given Christ the incarnate one, the conquered one, the conquering one, the nations to rule. Isaiah goes on to say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. 
even that word that was spoken through the false prophet, Balaam, although he spoke a true word when he prophesied over Israel for Barak, the word of our God stands forever. And what is the word that the Lord would have us to hold fast to? It's not our bank accounts. It's not our positions and powers at work. It's not this nation that we live in. No, and indeed no. The Lord would have us to look to him. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1.17. 1 Peter 1.17. The church is being persecuted. And then as well. And in 17 we take up the text. But if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works... Here's instruction for us. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed has foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the spirit and sincere love, and of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which, is, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh, think of the nations, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, away, falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Our hope is in God, not in man. We've been redeemed by the Lord of the Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed with incorruptible seed, even the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need not fear what man may do to us. We've just heard one small part of the record from what from God's word. So let this word, yes, even the whole Word of God be in your ears, filling your minds, meditating on it day and night, living by it day and night. Let it govern and direct you. For this Word, this Word of God alone is inspired. It's the breath of God, and it's inerrant, and it's infallible. It endures forever. But finally, the fourth point, the Lord worshiped for his deliverance. So the last thing we read in this place, verse 15, Then Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So here's the response to the great victory that the Lord gave that day. Moses built an altar. Uh, he set up stones. This was not an altar of sacrifice, though. You know, they've not come to Mount Sinai. Instruction has not been given, although Aaron, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob knew the sacrifice was acceptable. He's, he's building an altar. It's, it's more it's set as a monument. It's on this hill. 
Jacob also built one back in Genesis 33:20 to commemorate God bringing him safely back to the land of promise. Remember, he went out and God met with him. He says, I'm going to bring you back. And when he came back into the land, Jacob built an altar. He set up stones to commemorate the faithfulness of God. And we see Moses following that pattern. It's similar to the Scottish Cairns. If you travel through the highlands of Scotland, you will find these great stone piles where they piled up stone upon stone. And, and you can see them at some distance. I remember being on a tour on the island of Isla. The bus driver stopped. He was our tour guide. And he said, look off to the left. And you can see this great pile of stone, a cairn. And he said, that's there because. And then he described events, a battle that took place in that place. And it was set up as a memorial, a reminder. We see that that the Scots do is... Here, it's the examples here in the scripture. Moses has set up this altar of stones to commemorate God's faithfulness. And he names it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my standard, or as the King James has, New King James, banner. This altar was built where Moses had extended the rod of God. It was to be a place where the people could be passing by and look and see it and remember the faithfulness of God. It's important to have markers to remind us of the faithfulness of God in our lives. To be given hope. You see in verse 16, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So for some generations, they're going to be warring against Amalek. But they could remember this marker, this altar that was set up by the faithfulness of God. And they would have hope. They would worship the Lord because of His faithfulness to deliver them that day, and that indeed he would deliver them every day moving forward. The, ver- the events, verses 8 through 13, were but a foretaste of what was to come, and the altar was to serve as a reminder to the people that the Lord was their banner, the standard. When, when armies would go out to war, there would be a, a banner or a standard raised up so you knew where your, your troop, your platoon or whatever portion you were in the army. This is where my guys are. These are the men I've trained with. These are my brothers. That's where my commander is. The Lord is our banner. And we rally to him. And he will direct us. And he will deliver us. The Lord as a banner was not just for Israel, but indeed all who would rally to the Lord Jesus Christ. All would come under him. Again, listen to Isaiah, what he has to say about this very matter. Isaiah prophesied concerning the Messiah. He says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him. So here's this altar, this banner set up, named, The Lord is my banner. The people would be drawn. People would pass away. What's that about? Why is that set there? And the stories can be told. And Isaiah prophesying for the Lord that even the Gentiles who seek, who shall seek him in his resting place shall be glorious. Christ, the Messiah, the root of Jesse, is the banner to the people. To the people, the nations of the earth, all that would come to him. This is what Paul preached. He preached to the Gentiles. He rejoiced to be an apostle sent to the Gentiles. And it was this great mystery that was revealed through the preaching of the word of God under, under uh, Paul that the Gentiles also 
could be saved and would be saved. So indeed, let, let the sinners come. Let the sinners come to the Lord who saves sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. Come to this banner. Rally to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude by applying this to our daily lives. Matthew Henry, I think it's at the end of his treatment of this section, where he takes us where we've often gone in 1 Corinthians. He says, And these things which happened to them, that we've just heard about, are written for our instruction in our spiritual journey and warfare. And that's how I preach the text. This is for our instruction, for our spiritual journey, our spiritual warfare, sanctification. We are called to pray about all things. The scripture says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's great encouragement there to pray. Sinner, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in the godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. John has much to say about prayer. I'm thinking of John in his Revelation Revelation 5. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Here's the 24 elders. They're falling down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our prayers are in heaven. John, using prophetic language, apocalyptic language, it's so common in Revelation, he says, but they're like golden bowls, these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Later on in chapter 8, he says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood by the altar, and he was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar that was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Are we praying much? That's an incredible picture in the book of Revelation of our prayers. Incense before the throne of God. He hears our prayers uh, and the idea is it's a fragrant aroma as incense when it's burned is. Uh, we have not because we ask not. Sisters and brothers, why are we so often defeated in sanctification, our growth in grace? Because when Amalek comes, we don't use the means. Prayer. Looking to our God. He is still just as faithful as he was on this day that we've heard about. Sisters and brothers, Christ died to bring us to God. We have access to the throne of grace for help in time of need. Sure, that can be an illness. It could be when the church is plagued by persecution and so forth. But what's our regular need? We need strength from Christ. To overcome our flesh and live for his glory. Christ died so that our prayers could be in those golden bowls, incense before God. 
And we are to use these means to overcome. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. God works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, and he has made us more than conquerors. Without, we're out without an excuse. The Lord, the word of God, we mentioned earlier, it's the, it's the sword of the Spirit, Hebrews 4.12. And our Savior, Savior used it to defeat Satan in the wilderness. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 6 that we have this spiritual armor given to us by God, and it includes the sword of the Spirit. And how does he finish up? Pray. Praying. He emphasizes the importance of prayer. And how often... We neglect that in our daily lives. Consider the Lord keeps books in heaven. And the Lord commanded Moses to write down the events of the battle that day for Joshua that he should never forget. That is, Joshua should never forget the Lord's faithfulness. Joshua went on to lead Israel to victory after victory. The Lord's the one who gave it. Joshua had a strong faith. And he went fearlessly into battle because he learned who the Lord was. And noting he added to that record, and he can reread it and be reminded. We've spoke, focused on that over and over again, the need to be reminded. Let me suggest to you that it could be profitable to keep a book about your own life, a journal, writing down the Lord's faithfulness. You prayed and you see the Lord bring victory, and you record that. Then you're able to look back over these things and to be encouraged and strengthened by them. Let us do as David did, to memorize the word of God that we might meditate upon it day and night. In the introduction, we said that one thing had not changed. You remember what that was? The Lord's faithfulness. And that was true in this passage, at this time, for God's people then, and it is true for us today, the Lord is faithful. It is his name. He has made provision for his people. He protects his people. It's the theme of this passage, but we've seen it consistently through the book of Exodus. The God of Israel is our God. He is our covenant faithful Lord. And that second theme that flows from that is the Lord's faithfulness to you, his people is not dependent upon your worthiness. His faithfulness is anchored in what Christ has accomplished. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Before the foundation of the world, God gave us to his son. And the Lord is ever faithful. Let us seek him. Amen. Father, we pray that as we hear these things, that we would go forth and remember them, that we would meditate upon them, that we would learn from them, Lord, that you are faithful. Lord, we are unfaithful, but you are ever faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Lord, bless us to take up these things and think on them often today and through the week. And Lord, to apply them in our lives so that we might demonstrate your great power even as we would be reminded that we're not to take your name in vain. Lord, we call ourselves Christians. Let us live as such. We're a redeemed people. Let us live in the power of that redemption. We declare that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live as little Christ as he is at work in us. All for your glory. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.